Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones. Hello, I'm Giles Vickers-Jones and welcome to Bull by the Horns sponsored by Shy Aviation. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a hugely successful individual who has taken massive risks to reap incredible rewards. I'll be asking them how success has affected their careers and what inspires them to keep on taking risks. If you like what you hear, then please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's 100% free, and of course, you never miss an episode. In the last episode of our series, I get to catch up with the founder of the iconic photo and news agency, Splash News, Mr. Gary Morgan. Gary, gosh, I've known for 15 years, and part of the conversation, we talk about touring and the killer's tour bus. When I say touring, we went for one night around Hollywood, um... He's been a friend, a mentor, I guess, of some sorts. A fascinating guy to get to know. An absolute pioneer in his space and just an all-round fun, fun guy. Without further ado, let's give it up for Mr. Gary Morgan. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Giles. Good to be here. 6,000 miles away on Zoom. Not like the old days. Not like the old days. I think the last time I saw you, Gary Morgan, was... I flew in to see you. For those who don't know, Gary, we'll come into it in a minute, owned and sold the Splash Picture News Agency. Is that the right way of phrasing it? Splash News Picture Agency, it's all the same. Paparazzi, gossip, just trailblazing in that world. It was, uh, it was fantastic to have witnessed it when you were doing it, and even better to, to see the joy you're now living. Um, so I think the last time I saw you, Gary, I got off a plane... My business partner, Scott, and you said, what are you up to? And I said, I'm just going to the hotel. We're staying in Santa Monica. And you got the killer's tour bus for the weekend. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think we came and met you within about an hour of landing into our hotel. We were on the tour bus cruising around. Uh, I think we got through Hollywood. And I won't say what we did, but it's very good fun. If I remember, the toilet was blocked and we had to stop every 45 minutes and yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why you got it so cheap. The loot didn't work. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, listen, to Gary, it's great to talk to you. you I'm not going to say you've been retired, but the splash picture agency that those around the world, if you've ever seen a newspaper article, and I'd say from what mid nineties to 2011, you sold it, right? Yeah, 92, 2011. Um, we basically supplied content to 65 countries around the world. Um, with all the celebrity stuff that was happening pretty much everywhere. We had 10,000 photographers around the world, including a Dalai Lama's photographer, White House's chief correspondent, used to slip us some negs on the side. Um, we had people everywhere on the streets and inside all the best places. I mean, it was, it, I, I guess you couldn't open anything from the Sun, the Daily Star, through to OK and Hello Magazine. Globally, similar rags, you couldn't open them and not see the splash logo on the corner of the picture. You know, yeah, so, so that was a great thing. So you got the promotion. So they paid you for the photograph, but then you got the advert. Yeah. So so basically when we started Splash, we were Fleet Streeters, you know, born and bred in a pretty aggressive um, environment of Fleet Street, where you just went out with a photographer and you just scrambled. You've seen the, the scrums, you know, outside the nightclubs, etc. Yep. So that was how England operated. But when we came to L.A., we assumed it was the same way. But in fact, it was there was no really there were not really photographers out at all. Um, 
And we were writing stories and realized that photographs made a lot more money. So we just started putting photographers out, just taking on the same tactics as Fleet Street. And that turned out to be pretty aggressive for the US. And we grew very rapidly because we knew how to move content and sell it very fast. And um, so we just we just took the Fleet Street tactics, brought them over to LA and were surprised that no one else was doing them. So we kind of found a market gap immediately. And this was in the days when there were really no paparazzi. There was no real celebrity news. Back then, People magazine would not even buy a picture of a celebrity house. They would said it was beneath them. Um, and now the uh-huh. biggest uh, you know, consumers of it in the, in the world, probably people.com. And um, so when you started with no one else doing it, was it hard to get the content out there? If you said People magazine said it was beneath them, did you struggle to get the content away? And I guess the second part of it was paparazzi, I guess, a general overview of paparazzi photographer could be pretty sleazy, um, in some ways very intrusive. Um, but in other ways, we all consume it. So it's a necessity. So at which point did it turn where you became the ones who were required both by celebrity and, you know, the papers and the magazines? And so the first thing you have to understand is the gossip industry is the second oldest industry in the world after prostitution. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, you, you spend your life growing up in, in your suburban house talking about your neighbours and your mates. And when celebrities started being consumed, people were spending more time with celebrity, watching movies, reading about them, fascinated by the fan culture than, than they were really about the best friends. So yep. celebrities became like the, the ultra gossip. But this was all pre-internet days. So when we came over to L.A., we were literally just servicing the newspapers, uh, Suns, Mirror, Mail. We were, just, we were just focusing on them. And we were sending pictures over by FedEx. We're printing out eight by 10 prints and sending them over. Or we're using the old uh, crocodile clip method over the phone line. So if someone called in, the, 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 it would interrupt the whole picture transfer. And it could take 20, uh-huh. 25 minutes to send one picture to one place. Wow. So it was really the UK. And that was the only market we had. And then... Pre-internet, there was, a, I don't know if you, if you remember, a thing called FTP protocols where you yep. could drag and drop a picture into a folder and it would magically appear in a folder at the other end. And we realized very simply as a distribution, pre-email, pre-web, was this is the way if we added 65 folders, we could hit 65 countries, 65 different magazines. And then when email came in, suddenly that became 65,000 media yep. companies around the world. Um, so we were riding the wave of the early internet, but because no one else was doing it, we got the product out first. And back then a picture, and I'm sure you want to talk about pricing later, but pictures were worth $10,000 back then, um, per picture, per sale to Australia, to UK, to the US. And it just kind of catapulted from that. Um, the, the, there's roughly about two to 3 billion people consume celebrity a daily. I mean, that's, that's a good third of the population Um, and if you think you take out most of Africa and India and those kind of places they're very homespun in their in their celebrity you're talking about the western world so it's a that's a huge slice of people who wanted to consume celebrity did you um do you remember the time when do you remember the first picture you sold or the first kind of scoop that you got where I'm not about making 100 bucks 200 bucks but the big one we go you know we've seen it when someone caught Princess Diana in the tunnel in Paris, or who was pictured on a yacht, some favorite. Anyway, but there's loads of iconic images. Do you have any of those yourself? Yeah. So, uh, do you remember the first yeah. one? The first, the first time we realized that money was in pictures as opposed to words 
Um, backtracking slightly, the, the two of us that really set Splash up, Kevin Smith and myself, we were journalists. So we used to file stories out of the Hollywood Reporter and the LA Times every morning. Um, yeah. We'd make, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks if we're lucky there. Right. And one day, uh, the Sydney Morning Telegraph called up and said, hey, Malibu fires, 1994, can you check on Mel Gibson? And we're like, well, uh, where does he live? Like, well, can you find him? Back then, you could go on the electric register. It was all public information. No, you could not. Up Mel Gibson, you'd find his address, all public information. So we ran, went around to his house, knocked on the door, said, hi, we're from the Morning Telly in Sydney. We, they want to know who you are, how you are. You know, how's the fire? So he took us in his house, showed us all the damage. We took pictures. And then on the way out, we interviewed him and uh, he's standing in his front doorway and we said, can we take a picture of you? And he said, yes, we took a picture. And then he said, now fuck off and do a real story. And the word uh -huh. went for dollars and the picture went for 10,000. And we're like, Jesus. wait a minute, wait a minute. What the hell are we doing writing pictures? So that was the first time we realized there was a market for celebrity photographs. There were, there were no photographs of Mel Gibson, especially standing in his doorway. And there's nothing yeah. out there. No, no paparazzi, it was all the official stuff given to you by PRs around movies. That was the only thing, there's only access you had to celebrity. So that, you know, the, 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 as, as the internet came in, that's, that spurred the whole idea of, well, people, I mean, Hollywood is about putting bums on seats in cinemas, right? It's about yeah. driving money for studios. Once people realized the persona that celebrities gave off was different to their private persona, that really launched how gossip started really in, in this world because people are realizing that Mel Gibson you know, might, might be a guy who likes going to bars and having a few beers and chatting up girls rather than this Mad Max character that you see on the movie. So people got an intense interest, gossip again in, in private lives. So that's what really fueled it. Now I was talking big money, yeah. which is, um, yeah. Well, 10 grand's of, pretty good when you're only two, 300 a day, right? So 10 grand, that was per magazine that bought it. So the first sale was in Australia to Women's Day. Then we sold it to people, we sold it to you uh, in the UK, sold it, then then France, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Um, so that picture probably would have raised over 100,000 in 1994, which is a lot of money. <laughs> um, then, Did you, you go know, get the tour bus? Yeah, yeah, we saved up and got the killer's tour bus without a toilet. But some of the pictures, I mean, our biggest selling picture, and then sadly this was in a way, was Anna Nicole Smith being uh, wheeled out of, on a stretcher out of a hotel just before she died into the ambulance. And that was a 500,048 hour license with ET. Wow. I mean, 48 hours, that's what it was on TV. And back then you couldn't really steal pictures. So if it went on TV for 48 hours, no one was gonna steal the picture like today on the so on social. So that made a lot of money. Um, Britney Spears' first wedding in Vegas, um, very private, but she needed two witnesses, two other people to get married. They took the picture, gave it to us. Today, did you prearrange that? Did she, no, did she all, agree to that? So what happened, what used to happen is because we were the we were like the B2B suppliers. So we we're the clearing houses. So if someone called up TMZ or back in those days or people, they'd usually refer them to us and say, look, these guys can get your money around the world. We want first US rights. So they'd give them to us, we'd do the first US rights and we'd select everyone. So the first picture of Britney getting married to Kevin Fedline, that made in the time I was there, probably made about 2.2 million gross over wow. the sales of maybe five, six years. Um, so you get an insane type of money. Michael Jackson surrendering to the cops in Vegas on the plane. I mean, that made hundreds of thousands. So there were some really big ticket items back then. Uh, Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, first pictures of them, that kind of thing. And so this is, this is yeah. 90s, is it? Late 90s, maybe going into early 2000s. Yeah. Were you, were you still at that point the premier agency? Were there, were there any upstarts coming 
coming along and started in, taking in, a brand. In 2011, when we sold, we were the we were the major agency, probably by a factor of 10 to 20, way bigger than anyone else. And still to this wow. day, no, no one else has ever sold. We're the only we're the only paparazzi agency ever to to have sold, and we sold to Bill Gates. So that was quite an achievement. <laughs> Um, and I think is everyone else keep his photographs out of the press right now. Sorry, is that just he did it so he knew some photographs are looming in the background for his divorce? He thought he'd clear them out now. Uh, yeah, yeah, he wanted to get them out of the way. Yeah, no, we. Um, I think Bill Gates used to own um, a picture agency called Corbett, which was second only to Getty, and he was right. desperate to get more relevant in the news in the world of news. And celebrity was literally the fastest growing segment of entertainment of news at the time did it work for him was he happy with the acquisition um i would say no <laughs> mainly, <laughs> because, mainly because the, the company that borders was a stock agency and they had no idea how to run splash and basically drove it into the ground and sold it for pennies on the dollar in the end to uh, to the chinese did that so can i just track back a bit so you're growing the business you're just smashing it out the park um, a couple of things you mentioned. One was your, the Britney Spears, Kevin Fedline wedding. So at that point, you, there's two witnesses and they were, were they in on the photos, like on the sly or did they agree to provide photographs to said agency? So and sell like Britney and Kevin Fedline turned up in Vegas, like midnight trashed and they decided to get married, but they didn't have any friends with them. So the, preacher said well we can't marry you you need two witnesses so they went out into the waiting room and there were two people waiting to get married after them so they brought them in asked them to be the witnesses and allowed them to take pictures they gave the pictures to Brittany but on the flip side gave the pictures to us how did they so track they, you down our name was well our, our name was usually given out they probably would have called people magazine first people magazine back then would not be allowed to buy direct from the public so they would send them to us. We were known as the clearinghouse of everything celebrity. So they would send them to us. We would do the deal with them, which was 50-50. And we would just sell everything around the world and split the money. And that's essentially There's... what the model was. The middle model was 50-50. Whoever bought pictures in, we sold them and split the money. So if you got, you said 2.2, those people, the two people getting married in Vegas, they got a similar amount. Yeah, they, well, they would have made just over half of that. Gotcha. So about a million. About wow. a million. So this is a great thing. So I remember through the years when I was working in television, having spoken to you and some of your team, in particular Jenny, and some of the other journalists who worked with you, and they'd always say, you know, what are you doing? Where are you filming? And I guess I didn't see any harm if I'm filming something, allowing a photographer there to perhaps take photographs of the person I'm chatting to. And in that way, you're controlling, I suppose, the content to some degree and perhaps the upside in revenue. But did you find that there was a darker side to it? I mean, I'm kind of, I frankly couldn't give a shit how people make their money, it doesn't bother me, but we both know that there are some people who are selling stories on their friends. Did you guys have any kind of moral compass, if there's such a thing, for what stories you wouldn't touch, who you wouldn't go to? Maybe because you're gonna be threatened by their lawyers, maybe it ruined your reputation, I don't know. I'd say moral compass wise, no, <laughs> no. Um, I'm with you on that one. And uh, you know, I was on speed dial for one of the biggest celebrity attorneys at the time, Marty Singer, who would just call up and say, you've done it again. Okay, pull these pictures or we're just gonna sue the shit out of you. And that happened a few times and I go into- And what would you do though? 
How could, would you call it? Would usually give in straight away because no, it's not really worth it. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, there's a whole insidious side well, to it. So, there's a whole insidious side to the paparazzi or, or to celebrity. And that is, if you think about it, Hollywood, the land of dreams and, sh and shattered illusions, right? So 99% of the people who come to Hollywood fail. Um, the one percenters make it. And that means 99% of the people who came to Hollywood are pissed off. And they became the barman, the valet parkers, the gardeners, the waiters. And Bruce Willis would walk into, into Mr. Chow's and the barman would be, hey, I'm better than him. I should have had that part in Die Hard. Screw him. Pick up the phone, call, get a tip. <laughs> and then yeah. we'd be down there. But on the flip side of that, you know, being, being Hollywood, it wasn't just the disaffected and the guys who didn't make it, but it was the celebrities themselves. Because if you stop writing about Sylvester Stallone, six months later, he'd have no career because Hollywood wants to see him filling seats in cinemas. And if, he's, if people don't care about him, they're going to move on to the next guy. So a lot of celebrities would work with us after a few years when we worked out, you know, that, how this whole Hollywood PR machine worked. We became like the redheaded stepchild, if you like, of parties. Hollywood didn't want us, didn't want to invite us, but they knew if we weren't there that they wouldn't get the full service. So we'd start working with celebrities, PRs, managers who would tip us off to where celebrities would be, or they would tell tales on each other. One celebrity, probably shouldn't mention, called us up once and said, I've just lent Bruce Willis and Demi Moore my jet. They're going to Hawaii. I don't like them. Why don't you go and ruin the holiday? So <laughs> we, would get, we would get tips like that all the time. Now, what the would you do, though? So women, they, yeah. Can you just track back to us listening? So De Debbie Moore, Bruce Willis, gone to Hawaii. So what would you do? Would you have a photographer locally? Would you have like a sniper lens? What would you do? So if we didn't have a photographer locally, and, and we did actually put photographers on Hawaii because celebrities love going there, we'd fly out ourselves otherwise. But if we had the information, we would long lens it always long lens it. This whole idea you see of paparazzi today swarming is, is just not the way it used to be done. It used to be a crack in the wind, back window of a car with a long lens through. And if they never saw you, that would be the best way of doing it because right. but you want them, it's a bit like um, shooting wildlife in a safari, right? You don't want to disturb the, uh, the subjects or the animals. You want to get them uh, performing in their real life. So I'm you assuming you're not comparing Demi Moore to a wildebeest. A giraffe, I think more. Giraffe, right. Quite long leg to get you. Yeah, so you, you wanted Bruce comfortable on the beach, you know, kissing Demi Moore. You didn't want them sticking their hand up and running behind a bush. Did you ever so, find any, did you ever get any, like, photographs where it could literally, it's, A, it's a criminal offence they're performing, and you would perhaps not print it, not release it? And did you go well, to them and maybe negotiate for other images? There was a great story, actually, where uh, we were investigated by the FBI for distributing child pornography. <laughs> so this is this so that's where you went for two months. years that was a good call to get so Miley Cyrus when she was 15 got out of a car to go into a nightclub in Hollywood of course you know going into a nightclub at 15 wasn't a problem for anyone but getting out of a car with a miniskirt wearing no knickers was and the photograph was captured by multiple photographers and no one really checked the pictures before they went out so they went out around the world and back then we used to and commando it was a, it was a fashion amongst women celebrities i mean i'm assuming it's still fashionable might it's still fashionable but uh, that's yeah. why we're shooting for the waist up right in fact it uh, it started in london with with uh, with the, all the party girls getting out of black cabs with no knickers on so it's it called it's officially called going commando but we no one noticed this picture so we got a call from the fbi 
in LA saying, hey, you put out these pictures of Miley. And of course we're like, fuck, okay, sorry, probably can't say that word. Um, so we obviously withdrew them immediately while thinking, great, we're going to jail. But then the argument became very quickly, well, look, we've withdrawn them, we've done everything we can, but don't you think you should have a word with her, with her parents maybe and discuss why she's A, going to a nightclub at 15, and B, not wearing a knickers when she gets out of a car. Correct. Flashing herself. And so they kind of laughed about it, and um, I'm still here today, so I guess I survived that one. It worked. Okay, so look, this is all the good stuff. I think we all understand the picture agency world a lot more now. Let's go back to you as a business person. So you said you're in Fleet Street. You, you, where did you grow up, by the way? Where, did you, where were you living in England? I was born in Wimbledon. Um, Near where I am now, then. Yeah, it's very close to you. I've always wanted to be you. Um, and I then I moved over to um, Amersham, over in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. Uh, and grew up, you know, in commuter belt territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, did a history degree. Realised that uh, couldn't get a job apart from teaching, so went to do a journalism postgrad. And then ended up uh, ended up in this world. Mm. So I'm doing a drink. So you were. I mean, I was doing hard news in London. I was doing. Yeah. So you working uh, bombings and uh, you know Yugoslavia. Right, so you're doing top end. Stuff. Would that be like the Telegraph, the Times, Guardian, all those types of papers? Tabloid, not tabloids, broadsheets. I was once serious, yeah. And then um, and then I got fired from Today newspaper, and I had a choice of going to Yugoslavia to cover the war or go to LA to cover celeb. So, how old were you then? Sorry, how old were you then? 27. 27. So, you've got to America. Your partner, who then obviously worked together for 20 years, give or take, Kevin Smith, did you did you meet immediately or did you know each other back from the UK? Because you're both Brits, right? So, yeah, I used to um, sub his copy in the Daily Mirror. So, his copy would come in from LA and we'd, we'd sharpen it up and put it in paper. And when I went to L.A., someone said, hey, look up Kevin Smith. So I was staying on a yacht in the uh, marina yeah. and I called him and uh, he said, stand up and wave. So I stood up and waved and he was actually overlooking the marina and could see me. So we ended up going to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. He missed his flight by a week back and in Maui and um, decided to set up the uh, the agency. God, that must be so exciting. So going from... I mean, I suppose when you are freelancing and writing for other magazines and newspapers, to some degree, you have your own business, you're autonomous, but it's a lot different having to find a monthly wage bill. It's a lot different to planning taxes and moreover, planning how you spend your money. So how was that transition from being, let's say, a sole trader, one man band, merging together and then growing? I mean, I think I read... At your peak, you had, well, you told me earlier, but you had 100 staff full-time and then all these photographers around the world all on your payroll. So, That's all right, so a lot the, to deal with. So the staff were, were ours and they'd be on payroll. The, the, we had 10,000 photographers total around the world, obviously not all active at the same time. But we had people in such diverse places, Tibet, China, you know, US, Australia, that when a picture came through, they'd send them to us and we would, pretty much cut it down the line, 50, 50, 60, 40. So we didn't have to pay the freelancers. We'd had to pay them as soon as we sold. So there was a cash issue, but they weren't on payroll per se. It was better for them to be freelance because they took a picture of, uh, you know, Mel Gibson or first picture, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Anderson. They were going to make tens of thousands rather than a wage. Yeah. So the photographers way prefer it that way. Gotcha. So how do you find the transition? They go back again to running a business. Did you like yeah. 
having a company? I've got to say it was uh, pretty much just trial and error. We were mm. a couple of journalists who are not known for their business acumen. Journalists, you know, we're basically pisshead writers, right? Like to have a good yeah. time. So it grew very, very fast. Um, and we had to learn the hard way about how to do it, especially in a different country as well, fitting into the rules of how labor worked in, in California, which is never easy. Um, but it grew exponentially fast. And I think we kind of made it up as we went along and then realized after a while we need some help. So we brought CFOs in and, you know, the, the money guys and tax guys and stuff and basically relied on them while we just focused on creating the content and expanding the distribution. And distribution was key because if you can get go from five countries to 65 in a matter of a year, then you can pretty much deal with anything because the money's rolling in. Gotcha. So once again, it's all down to cash flow there. It's all down to cash flow. And that was that's probably the tightest thing of running a paparazzi-style business. It's all cash. So if a photographer takes a picture of Kim Kardashian on a yacht and it makes 20000 he doesn't want to wait six months to get paid. So you'd have to get a line of credits in from the banks where possible, and you'd have to feed feed that machine while you were chasing the money aggressively. So we probably so, lost about 25% of our, of our revenue. I was going to say, I bet it's a lot of loss, right? So small publications went under and who was didn't yeah, pay, pay or pay six months late or you'd have to chase them. So, you know, it wasn't easy, but we started off by adding salespeople like crazy. Jenny, as you mentioned, who says hi, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, then we added, then we added the back end having stuff. <laughs> yeah. Then we added the accounting staff um, and the sports staff. And that was really, the support staff were massive to, to fit, to support 10,000 photographers on monthly sales reports. That was hard enough on its own. Yeah. So what was the, what was the kind of the hardest part of that growth or, you know, maybe the part where you thought, did you have a moment where you thought it wouldn't succeed? Was there any moments where you thought you might've gone under? A couple of moments. One key one was being chased across the Gulf of Mexico by a police gunboat with a 50 cal machine gun pointing at us with the siren. Of course you did. Mexican cops going, Aldo, 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 Aldo. Sorry, sorry. Um, Go back a bit. What happened? So we were chasing Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston uh, down in Acapulco. And we found out the house on the beach they were on. So we got a little fishing putt-putt boat with a little driver with a five horsepower putt-putt engine on, put a tarp over over the boat and took a load of long lens pictures. What we didn't know was this was the president of Mexico's beach house villa, which is pretty heavily patrolled by cops. So the next thing we know is police gunboat is blaring down on us, you know, sirens blaring, 50 cow pointed at us, screaming stop, oh, stop. Okay. And this little fisherman decided to make a run for it with his five horsepower engine. So we're literally <laughs> going, you, know, you can imagine it's a little fishing boat with a little guy going, bat, 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 bat. Big, big jet boat come behind us going, out the woo, 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 woo. <laughs> So this could have been comical. It would have been like being chased by a Zamboni across the ice, across the ice. In an ice oh, were, they, were they knock-on effects from that for you? No, I mean, you know, most of the time it was just, they didn't want to deal with it. Most cops back then thought it was all pretty stupid. Um, and there's another case like that in Hawaii where we were filming Waterworld and we got in a fight with Kevin Costner on the beach and literally fisticuffs were going, we're like switching, you know, switching uh, uh, roundhouses and haymakers with, with Kevin Costner and of course failing to connect. Cops arrest us, tiny little photographers, like four foot 10, he gets arrested. So we're, we're, in, the, we're in, the, in the cop station and the cops are saying, okay, Kevin Costner wants to file terrorist assault charges against you. And we're like, oh, that's not good, is it? It's like, no, it's a felony. Yeah, you're going down if you get, if you get busted in this. So we said, what are we going to do? And the cop, Hawaiian guy, remember his face very much. He laughed and he said, 
I can go and file terrorist assault charges at him for you if you want. And we're like, okay, go do that. So he came back in five minutes later. He said, Mr. Cross has agreed to drop all charges if you will. And so we said, okay, <laughs> thanks. And he burst out laughing, took the handcuffs off and said, now get the fuck out of my island. Man, I love that. I love that. Listen, we're going to get a quick break. We're going to come back and I want to hear about some of the fun you had. Because every time I've been to your offices or seen you out and about, you've got a massive smile. So I want to find out how you've managed to maintain this. Um, right, guys, we'll be back in a minute. You've been listening to Ball by the Horns, sponsored by Show Aviation with Mr. Gary Morgan from the Splash Picture News Agency. Back in a minute. Shy Aviation and Lifestyle is the global leader in private aviation. Offering an unparalleled round-the-clock service, Shy Aviation focuses on every detail of your flight and are dedicated in making private jet travel as effortless as possible. With no hidden fees or membership costs, our pricing is straightforward and transparent. You only pay for what you use and when you use it. With global airport access, your travel destinations are endless. Plus, with our front door to jet door service, you'll experience true contactless travel, meaning you'll be at your safest with us. We'll even include a complimentary luxury lifestyle concierge for all clients. We're here to help you unlock the world safely, discreetly and privately, and to always give you the ultimate luxury experience. Request a quote and start your journey with us today at shyaviation.com. Splash News is a global content agency and they're the largest and fastest growing entertainment agency in the world. Their 4,000 contributors work 24-7 right across the globe covering international and local entertainment news and assignments capturing the latest content as it happens. Ultimately, they deliver quality fast. To find out more, visit splashnews.com. Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones. Welcome back to Bull by the Horns, uh, sponsored by Shiviation. I'm Giles Vickers-Jones. Our amazing guest today is the permanently happy Mr. Gary Morgan. Welcome back, Gary. Right. Thank you, Giles. Good so, at the, at the end of the chat, just in the first half, I, we, were, we were laughing about one of the worst moments when you were chased down by a, uh, essentially machine guns through... Um, Acapulco, outside Acapulco, and um, you were still smiling. And most people go, fuck, that was pretty grim. Or Kevin Costa roundhousing you and, you know, being done for almost terrorism on an island of Hawaii. Can I ask you, right? So every time I've seen you, and I've, I guess I first met you back in maybe mid 2000, and then I spent, I was, over, I was over in LA a lot, and I got to know you very well, and, you know, and I've, I've enjoyed all your friends and your company. It's never seems to have changed. And you've been, you know, you've had some heartache, not to dwell on it too much. And, you know, you've, you always seem to be smiling. And, and I imagine there are times when the business might not be going that well. A big supplier might have gone bust. You might be knocked at 10, 20, 100 grand. How have you maintained, is it a facade, right, when you're in the business? Or how do you maintain that happiness? What do you do that perhaps another business owner doesn't do? Well, a wise philosopher once told me that you should always smile and then nobody knows what you've been up to. Um, that was actually a stupid cartoon, actually. But um, I've always that been works. a pretty happy, smiley person. I'm probably smiling a lot more in the interview now because, let's face it, I'm retired early. 
sold the company and I've had the privilege of pretty much being with my 10 year old kid ever since birth every day. Um, so that makes you smart yeah. enough. Um, so I haven't had to uh, get caught up more in the rigmarole of, uh, of daily commute and work, which is a big, big smile uh, benefactor. Um, but yeah, I've always been pretty happy, but I think of that smile partly, I think, again, to be slightly serious, if you're always smiling, people assume that uh, everything's going rosy. But there was a lot of heartache during uh, the time at Splash. I mean, we, we had huge cash crunch problems, uh, trying to keep up with uh, paying the photographers before we collected. We got sued a few times, which were pretty nerve wracking. I mean, Rod Stewart slapped a $10 million lawsuit on us one day. Um, so, you know, getting out of that was kind of uh, a little grievous. Um, what did happen? Well, that's so, quite a big statement to have, to have made, and then just stroll on to another bit of happiness. On. Well, that's a classic way of how it used to work in Hollywood back then. So, his um, former security guard gave us a load of pictures of Rachel Hunter, his then wife, and we started selling them. And Rod Stewart found out. So, Marty Singer, again, the, the top lawyer there, slapped a $10 million lawsuit on us. And I remember the conversation very well, sitting in our lawyer's office. And back then, he just called up Marty Singer and said, okay, what's going to make this go away? Marty Singer, well, we want 10 million. How about we give you the pictures back? <laughs> and then it was like, okay, deal. And that was as, it was as simple as that to get rid of stuff. Back then- But had you, had you cashed them out though? Had you made any money? No, what happened was we, was we were selling them in Australia, or New Zealand, Australia to start with, because she was a Kiwi. And- the magazine then called Rod Stewart's people for a comment. Oh. And that, that's what started the whole thing. Which but in hindsight... Point, published first. I mean, he claimed yeah. they were stolen by the security guard. Security guard claimed that he took them on his own camera, which meant he owned the copyright. But rather than argue that with Rod Stewart, um, we, uh, we basically just decided to give the pictures up because there was no way we were going to make 10 million out of them. Um, that's quite a scary number. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's done for effect as well. Back, quite often, Hollywood will file outrageous kind of uh, lawsuits because it's a way of them getting their, their, their comment out. Because if I say I'm trying to sell a personal picture of, of uh, Rachel Hunter, and then Rod Stewart comes out in a quote and says, yeah, I'm suing them for 10 million over this, not a magazine in the world's going to touch it. No, no, got it. So that was pretty scary. She gets cash crunch moments. Um, and I can imagine... You know, some photographers, I mean, I think I met your friend Giles. He still makes with Giles, yes. the photographer. Yeah. And he was pretty prolific. I remember seeing him, he used to drive around on a huge Escalade. He's a big lad anyway. And he was he pulling some big numbers, right? It'd make a good interview, actually, because he Giles was the frontline guy. You know, I had a few stories, but I was mainly the business guy. Giles was out there every single day, um, you know, getting into shenanigans, six foot ten. 350 pounds, that, that guy was, was very noticeable. But he got good shots, because when he put his arm up, he was like nine feet yeah. tall. So shoot Doesn't need a step ladder, ever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the problem was, I mean, he, he bought in a ton of money, but like all the photographers, they got bills to pay. And by the time you bill a magazine, they put it through the system and you collect it, minimum three, four months. And wow. you'd be up to six months. And if you're a photographer and you just hit a $100,000 set, you don't want to wait six months to get it. So we'd have to try and find the money up front to pay them. Back then, paparazzi was like Bitcoin today. No one really trusted it. No one would really um, lend you money. So no. we'd end up remortgaging houses, um, you know, taking you out- You did all that? Homes. Oh yeah, we remortgaged. I mean, my house I bought in 95, I owe more on it now today than I bought it for in 95 because 
because, <laughs> because you had to refinance to, you had to refinance to lend money to the company. Um, so yeah, we were we were a few times we were very close to going under, but we always pulled through. Money would come through somehow, um, and just keep going. But it was a cash based business back then. It was very little bank support because it was too new an industry. It's, it was like the early days of social. No one really. But actually, and the so irony is, by the time you need the bank, you've got enough money. So yeah, you know, you it's it's just when you need it the most, right? That's the hardest it's part. A, it's a typical entrepreneurial story, isn't it? You you personally suffered to make the business work, and you either works or it doesn't. Yeah, but if you get out the other side, which we'll come on to in a minute, you sell to Bill Gates, right? So let's talk about your partner and you. So Kevin, dear friends, I'm assuming you're still friends today. Just got slightly trashed with him three days ago. Good work. Um, I wish I was there. I won't lie to you. So how did the partnership, because I, I've got friends who've done business by themselves and they've sold the stuff and I'm always eternally impressed how they do it alone. I've got a business partner. I've always had business partners. And I find that without someone to kind of bounce, it's mostly when it, this shit hit the fan, actually. That's the hardest part. How did you guys separate your roles and how important were you to each other as business partners? Well, I don't think either of us would have been able to do it without the other. Um, we slotted quite nicely into a role where if we disagreed, rather than row about it, one of you would just naturally move into the support role, depending on how the other one thought, and you'd kind of trust the other guy. Um, and then we'd split roles. So he'd be more about the money side, the, the back end, and the payment side. I'd be more about the face out there to, to the front end. Um, and he just kind of slot into that. But we lasted together in business maybe 23 years, which is probably more than 90% of marriages. Yeah, yeah. Right. There are actually therapists that are dedicated to business breakups because the trauma, they say, of a business breakup is usually harder than a divorce. Well, um, believe that. Yeah, we were quite lucky. By the time we sold and, and we moved on, we were still friends. Um, you know, you, of course you have your run-ins, of course you have your disagreements, but I'm, I'm quite staggered, and most people are, that we lasted 23 years together and we naturally... We naturally fitted each other by assuming the role in support of the other one. Um, and it just seemed to work. And then, of course, you bring in the staff below you anyway. Um, and you, I started focusing more on video towards the end and social and trying to monetize new media channels. He focused on the more traditional, how we're going to pay the sources, how we're going to get the money out to them, how we're going to keep that side afloat. Yeah. So, and the fact you just said to me earlier, you got trashed three days ago is testament to perhaps the success of the partnership and why you did so well by selling the company. So let's move on to the company. So you're, 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 you're gearing up to sell, right? You can't have known you're going to sell to Corbis. Corbis, right? It's Corbis. It was Corbis, but um, Corbis. we didn't know about this. The story is that we were not looking to sell at all. We were riding away very high. We were, we were growing so damn fast by millions more a year that we thought, well, when's this train going to end? And we didn't think about selling or we could just focus on growth and how to get the cash in to fund that growth. And then within the same week, actually, Bill Gates and Rupert Murdoch's people called us, said, we want to buy the company. And we looked at each other and thought, if we don't sell to one of these guys, we're just bloody idiots, because yeah, right. this, is, this is not going to happen again. So I went through about a year of negotiation with both of them. A and, year? Yeah, well over a year. Um, backwards and forwarding on how the business plan worked inside Murdoch's group or inside Gates. And uh, Gates, in the end, was the was the bigger bigger cash offer, really, which what we're interested in. We realized if we're going to sell, it's probably a one-shot deal. Bill Gates actually always says that if you sell a company once, you don't know if you're lucky or good. Until you sell a company twice, 
you could be just lucky. Yeah, right. That makes great sense. I personally don't care because I don't really want to start another business. But no, um, all right. um, but yeah, so we said, look, if we don't sell to one of these guys, we're probably going to shoot ourselves the foot. So we made the decision eventually and the business social media started rising very, very fast at this point, And it pretty much led to a big plateau in the celebrity business the traditional agency supplying content to the media business because under social celebrities could start posting their own stuff before we even got it. Sure. So that took a lot of steam out. So I think we just got it on that classic uh, rise just before it started plateauing and we got it literally at the, probably the best point we could have been to sell kind of unknowingly and we didn't know where it was going, but I think we were very lucky to have got out when we did. Isn't that kind of nine times out of 10, that story? that most entrepreneurs tell you when they sold their company, they got out at the right time. Can I ask you, when they were looking under the bonnet, was there anything you had to tidy up as a company? What did you, do you adjust anything for the sale? Yes, yeah, so debt had to be gone. So you had to clear a lot of the business debt. Again, that meant maybe borrowing some money personally to clear the debt because we knew the, the, the fact that the money was gonna come back the other side. Yeah, um, we had to clear up any kind of legal lawsuits or any labor um, uh, disputes we might have had with photographers. So we had to clean up the company a lot. The, the funny thing is, though, that our back end, the tech platform, we didn't actually own the tech platform. We devised it and we ran it with and we built it with a software engineer who still had rights to part of it. But, but Corbis never asked that question. So when they bought the platform, they had a whole lot of headache with this guy because he essentially owned part of their business at that point. But they never asked the question about about Shit. where who owned it. So, so yeah. But most stuff had to be cleared up, um, especially with we had to get the permission of the photographers to forward their archives on to the new owners because it's was that hard to do. Mm, no, I mean once once they realised what was happening. I mean, when if you tell them Bill Gates is buying it, people tend to think, well, that's going to be yeah. plus, right? Add another zero. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think they're all quite excited by it. So you you're coming to sell your company, the night you sell it, how does it work? Do you get the money into your current account? Is it with an escrow? How does it get dispersed between you and Kevin and any other small shareholders? What does that look like that moment? So you'd agree the price and it usually gets paid out over a three-year period. It's called an earn out. So as long as you turn up to work every day, and achieve certain goals, then you may get half up front and then they'll pay, you know, third, third, third of the other half over the next three years because they want to keep you in this in the company. Um, Kevin actually ended up leaving straight away and I stayed on for three years. Um, but, you know, they want some kind of guarantee that the owner's not just going to walk away and leave them unable to run the company. So did Kevin um, forfeit some of his money then? No, no, we did a deal. Look, it's a twin syndrome, right? You don't want twins. If you buy a company, you don't want the twins who run the company both there afterwards. You want one guy who's going to do what he's told to the big boss who's bought your company now. So you have the twins in place and you get a lot of conflicting stuff. So, you know, we, we talked about it and Kevin was happy just to go off. And I was still kind of excited at that point by where the industry was going. But did you, so I want to go back to the brass tank. So you get paid, right? What happens? You go check your balance every three or four minutes to wait for here to hit your current account what happened oh it goes into escrow and then right. once, once a deal's signed the money gets released so there's no chance of anyone backing out of anything once a deal's done so the money is put into escrow in the first place and it's released 
by escrow companies are third party companies. Not yep. sure if you have those in the UK. Do yeah, we do. They do. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the way they act is they make sure all the dots um, dots are dotted and the T's are crossed. And once that's done, they release the money out and it's sort of legally held in a third party bank account. So no one can try, kind of steal it back or anything. Always useful. And how did it feel when it hit your bank? What did you do? What do you remember? I mean, you, you know, you've been obviously, I'm assuming you've been making an income for a while at that point. I've seen your house in Santa Monica and, uh, well, Venice actually your house, isn't it? Venice or Santa Monica? Venice, yeah. Venice, yeah. Um, so you'd already started earning, right? So you, did you have a, what was that bloody boat you had? It was like, was it bought from Dennis? You had Dennis Rodman's old speedboat, didn't you? Yeah, we had um, a cigarette boat. It was like a but fountain, pure white. Um, Dennis Rodman had, had smacked it into the rocks a couple of times and uh, cool. had to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we brought it off him. It was kind of like a, a sales present for us. Um, and yeah, it was like a 90 mile an hour boat, 1500 horsepower engines. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I think we went out in it a couple of times, didn't we? Um, so, sorry, what, so yeah, the money. So yeah, the, when the money came, it was kind of a, a period of, of what the fuck, because you couldn't believe that there was that much money sitting in a bank account. So the first thing you did is go give it to someone else because you didn't want it anywhere near sure. the bank account. But yeah. Trying to move that money out of your bank account into an investment account the bank kind of like, what? What's happened just here? You know, you've you've had a few yeah. thousand. It takes weeks. And got millions just coming in. And they're like, yeah. can you come and see us? We we want to know what the hell's going on. Um, <laughs> it's kind of yeah, it's, it's surreal because you're not used to having that kind of money around you. Mm. But the and what did you do? Because mm. you went off and did other things. I'm assuming you obviously you were savvy with your investments. You kept some aside. Um, did you feel afterwards? You obviously you worked the three years. Did you then feel? you could do it again and have you attempted to do it again and what's the landscape like for you now so you mean do kevin actually other businesses started, other actually started, yeah what? What? similar companies maybe diversify to another business try and go again as an entrepreneur right so kevin for example did start up splash two as we like to call it we call mega that still runs today so he started the whole thing again um, because he, I, he, he wanted, he just wanted to do it again. I didn't have the appetite to do celebrity anymore. So I look, I look more into the media tech world and, and did a couple of startups uh, with clickable media content, which the idea of on the web today, you're, you're, you're used to just clicking on a picture or a video to see where you can buy the shirt or whatever. So I got immersed in that technology, but that kind of died a death. We started up, um, a company called Click My Closet, where we'd go into celebrity homes and they'd show us all the clothes in their closet. You could click on them and see where they got them. And that was going great guns for a couple of years. And then basically the money started running out, COVID hit, and um, the whole thing went up, went basically stopped. And so I've still got it. I could start it again, but I realized COVID kind of brought me down to the idea that why am I bothering when I could be yeah. just... There's that, there's Enjoy your adage, son. There's a whole adage. There's a Mexican fisherman who catches 10 fish a day in an hour. And he's asked by... Um, the investor what do you do now and he goes well I go go back home have a siesta with my wife play with my kids then go to the bar and and play guitar and drink wine with my friends and the investor says well I could show you how you could make this multi-million business you move to Mexico City you run it and in 20 years time you sell it and he goes that's amazing then what he goes well then you go and uh, have a siesta with your wife play with your kids <laughs> and go to the bar and drink some wine with your friends and he's like you know well, I'm already doing that yeah, you know, he's been so a lifetime working. It, it so look me down to the point of view of, of, of well, why, why am I bothering? So I put money into like in alternative investments now. 
like uh, an esports team in California, Mezcar company, um, Bitcoin, cryptos, that kind of stuff. And I just play with about 10% of the money I have and I leave 90% with the investors who know what the hell they're doing and invest the money for me so I can live off it. Good man. So listen, looking back, we'll, we'll wrap it up now, Gary, but looking back at your life, friend, have you got a best time in your professional life that you've ever had? Can you think of a one moment where it was just, you know, the elixir, the perfect day, the perfect moment? That would have been a night out with you, Giles. Well, I was going to suggest that. Thank God. <laughs> right, Gary, you've been brilliant. <laughs> um, but listen, it's a tough question, but okay, last one. Any advice for any entrepreneurs out there, those looking to start their own companies, businesses? Um, well, yeah, the old adage, I guess, is hard work. Um, but mainly, there's a lot of luck involved. Keep your head in your shoulders. Don't overshoot for the stars. Look at where the money's coming from. Just make sure you've got six months of money in front of you at any time. You don't want to get caught because once you get caught, if you run out of cash, your business is over. But essentially, it's have fun. Do something that you're really immersed and interested in and make it fun, but make it a lot of hard work. And hopefully it will, um, you'll be on the show in a couple of years. Mate, thank you so much for the time. And uh, what's the rest of the day looking like for you? Since it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock there. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, when, when, the, when, the, when the girl comes back, we're probably going to do something fun, like look at the St. Louis Arch. <laughs> Half of the McDonald's sign. We'll go climb I mean, that. For those listening at home, this is what you can do when you've sold your company to Bill Gates. You can go look <laughs> yeah, get at... Get Missouri. Yeah, really good architecture. Living the yeah. dream. Um, Gary, thanks, mate. And we'll see you soon. Right? You'll be back in the UK soon, right? Uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks, if we can get in. Well, look, lunch on me. Lovely speaking to you. Love to the team. Thanks, mate. All right, mate. Good to see you. Cheers, Gary. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, everybody, that was Gary Morgan. You've been listening to Ball by the Horns. Thank you so much. We're sponsored by Shy Aviation. Bye. <laughs>